I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode of The Trade Guys, we welcome another special guest. Leslie McNitt is the Director of Public Policy for the National Corn Growers Association. We'll ask Leslie what she's hearing from corn growers, from the administration, and from the Congress, and much more right here on this episode of The Trade Guys. Leslie, it's so great to have you here representing the National Corn Growers Association. But I want to just put corn in the United States in perspective for a second. The United States grew more than 14.6 billion that's billion bushels, which is 385 million metric tons of corn last year. That's roughly 17% of that production was exported to more than 80 different countries. That's a lot of corn. It's a lot of corn. And when you look at all the other products that corn goes into and those exports, it really amounts to closer to like 25% of our production being exported. So Mexico, 25% of this is exported to Mexico. 21% is exported to Japan. 9% is exported to South Korea. Those are the three top U.S. corn export destinations. Those are three hugely important U.S. trade partners. We could go through the other top 10, but this is, this is a big part of our export economy. So tell us what's interesting for you now. I mean, there's there's been a lot going on with farm. There's been a lot going on with trade. President Trump just announced a big, big package of farm aid. How's this all affecting you? Well, in my day to day, you know, we're dealing with all of it. The way I think about it is we are seeking to get back on offense. Corn farmers want to get back on offense on trade. And what I mean by that is we are, uh, in the last couple of years, responding a lot on trade. And and we'd like to be more in a posture where we can be going after new markets, new trade agreements. Because what we've seen, and you know, two out of the three markets that you just cited as our top three, we have free trade agreements with, and we're seeking one with Japan being the other one where we don't have a trade agreement. You know, those trade agreements really have catalyzed dramatic growth in exports for corn farmers and have performed really, really well for corn farmers. And trade has has sort of skyrocketed as a priority in the in the policy space for corn farmers. So we want to see, you know, diversification of our portfolio, get back on offense, start building out new markets, new agreements to to facilitate that trade. But we've been responding to a lot of these issues, you know, whether it's threatened withdrawal from NAFTA or the U.S.-Korea free trade agreement, you know, how to deal with trade aid, how to deal with the disruptions with China. It's been a little bit more of a defensive crouch, and we are looking to get back on offense. So that's how this is moving around in my mind right now. Scott Miller, who is a Midwestern farm guy who loves corn is chomping at the stalk to get in on this. Scott, <laughs> well, well, Scott the, jump I, in here. My, the corn, corn is a part of my part of my boyhood. Yeah. Uh, so uh, no doubt of, uh, I remember it being the principal crop uh, in the part of Ohio where I grew up and, and really everything, a lot of states west of Ohio. So uh, one of the things that a lot of people that I discovered about corn that many of our listeners may not know is how many products corn winds up into. Uh, everybody knows sweet corn and breakfast cereal, uh, but a lot of it goes into animal feed. There are many other human food uses. It's a principal ingredient in the mash bill and Jack Daniels whiskey and uh, lots of American. Uh, well, that's sacred. Whiskey. Absolutely. So. There's a song about that, you know. There, Rain well, well, makes corn, corn makes whiskey. 
and it goes on from this there. This is a country song, I'm It assuming. is indeed, yes. Bill, you are a font of information today already. Uh, could, 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 Scott, please continue, but you, it's good yeah. to know about Jack Daniels. Sure. That's good. But if, could you give us an idea of all the things that corn goes into? Because that's part of your diversification strategy. It is an important part. I mean, Cheetos and Doritos are my favorite corn products, but nice. um, and cereal. Yeah. Um, Captain Crunch is my favorite Captain corn Crunch. product. That's yeah. a corn I mean, product. Yeah. But you've got corn gluten feed and meal, right? Like you said, hmm. livestock feed. There's distiller's dried grains, which is a byproduct of the ethanol process, which is also an animal feed product. Um, with, it's an oil seed, right? So you get corn oil. You get corn oil, um, but it goes into starches, sugars, so you know processed foods. What, what gets exported? The raw material or these uh, downstream products? It's all of the above. So still direct corn exports. The actual you know corn, corn is still the leading category for us in terms of exports. And that's mostly feed corn, right, yes. rather than sweet corn. Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, you eat sweet corn, you know, white corn makes its way into tortillas. Those are all things. Popcorn, we have members that grow popcorn, of course. But most of the corn is yellow corn that makes its way into feed products, is processed, or becomes ethanol, which is another major category. So we still mostly export corn, but over the years have seen a real trend in value-added products. Mm -hmm. So all the other things that we just collectively listed, we've seen those products and that diversification in how we export corn. We call it corn in all forms. You know, we've seen that really grow. Got it. Well, we heard about the NAFTA train from a previous ag guest, uh, Blake Hurst of the Missouri Farm oh, Bureau. Sure. And uh, Blake talked about the NAFTA train. And, and at that time, when we, when we interviewed Blake, he was uh, we were just at the front end of the, of the retaliation for the steel and aluminum tariffs. And they were worried about the NAFTA train. So what's the situation at the moment? And what's the relationship with our neighbors in, when it comes to corn? This relationship is critically important to the farmers that I represent. Um, They've put a lot, our industry has put a lot into really integrating our supply chains. So making trade really efficient. The Mexican livestock industry has really, really grown um, as a result of NAFTA. And, and you know, we are their top supplier of feed. Um, so it's a really important relationship. And, and Canada is our number two market for, um, for ethanol exports. So that's a really important relationship. I think that, you know, the U.S. corn industry has worked really hard, particularly through some of the turbulence in the last couple of years, to say, hey, we're still your friend. We still want to be a reliable supplier. The quality of our product, the efficiency with which we trade, our relationships are still really, really strong. And we'll continue to advocate for the future of that relationship. And I think that that's solid. But I also think throughout the uncertainty, our neighbors have had to think about what their plan B would look like if we were no longer a reliable supplier of the products that they enjoy. Uh, Mexico in particular has demonstrated a willingness to talk to Brazil and Argentina sure. as as their plan B um, and has increased imports of, of corn a little bit um, and of rice and beef as well. So, you know, this is impacting other commodities and other farmers, not just the ones I represent. But, you know, if you're not sure what the terms of your trade are going to be, I think it's understandable that anyone would look for a plan B. But we're just, you know, feeling really positive that, that our relationship is strong at the moment. Well, the retaliatory tariffs went away a week ago, eight days ago. What's happened? Anything? Things are getting back to normal? So it's my understanding that they're getting back to normal, but um, we were in kind of a unique position where um, corn and corn products didn't have retaliation from Mexico and Canada for the steel and aluminum 
tariffs. We knew that our day could come any moment, but you know, pork, dairy, apples, there were a number of other commodities that really, really felt it in a different way. Where we saw that hit was reflected in our price, and prices have stabilized a little bit, but I don't necessarily think it's a result of mm-hmm. the tariffs going away for corn. Our price is more closely tied to soybeans, and so we still have the impact of what's going on with China. It's just so bad we, weather. They can't plant. So soybeans is a substitute when it come in terms of animal feed for corn. So soybean prices drop, it puts pressure on corn prices. Typically, yes. I mean, there's a very strong correlation in the mm-hmm. marketplace. But we weren't hit directly with retaliation from Mexico and Canada in this particular instance. And yet the business was still disrupted to some extent. Absolutely. I yeah. think, listen, the market doesn't like uncertainty. Right. Farmers are trying to figure out what to do, how to make planting decisions. I mean, there were a lot of farmers that were going to plant more corn this year because the soybean markets have been you know, a mess as a result of what's going on with China. And we've seen corn prices down, but still... Soybeans are in worse shape, so they were going to plant corn, but it's been very the the weather's been a nightmare. This is a theme from every single guest we have on this show, which is if you look at the macro numbers, you really have to squint hard to find the impact of the tariffs and the retaliation in the in the overall macro growth numbers. So the economy looks pretty good at top line basis, but everyone we talk to is their business has been disrupted in important ways, and it's 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 opening that up and getting those voices to become more prominent in the debate that I think would help Washington a lot. So, Oh, well, absolutely. One of the debates coming up about the, the relief, the $16 billion or whatever it is that is being cranked 16, out. Trump administration announced last Thursday $16 billion farm aid package to offset losses from a 10-month trade war with China. One of the criticisms that I'd like you to comment on of that was that this is going to influence farmer planting decisions, that if they think the uh, the soybean benefit package is bigger, they're going to plant more soybeans, and that would mean less corn or vice versa. Do you, is that true? Is that anything like that going to happen? Or is it are planting decisions at this point pretty much locked in? It's tricky. I think that They sort of were locked in, but a lot of farmers have not been able to plant corn. We're way behind in our corn Mm, planting because of the weather. weather. You've had floods, you've had late snow, rain. I mean, it's just been really, really tough, right? So what are these guys doing? Guys and gals are sitting home watching the markets. They're watching the volatility. They're watching prices, and they can't get out in the fields, and they're anxious, and they're frustrated. And I think that the timing of this announcement even without having all of the details about what the package will look like, it incentivizes farmers to plant, or at least to look what they did last time and try and take signals from there. I do think that USDA is trying to avoid that to the extent possible. And you know, we certainly have been providing guidance to try and avoid that because mm-hmm. you know, we don't want it to distort those decisions and distort the marketplace. So what are you telling them? Plant what you think is going to happen to prices and going forward? We don't really tell our members what to plan. Well, but if you're providing but, guidance, what, what guidance are the, you providing well, the them? Challenge, well, we were providing some guidance to the administration on behalf of farmers about uh, how to avoid that scenario as much as possible. Some of it can't be avoided. But you know, the, the challenge here is that farmers were going to plant corn and then they couldn't. So what can they plant later? Mm-hmm. They can plant soybeans. This they is weather-related, basically. It's what That's yeah. weather-related. And then the pro- announcement of a program sort of signals further that they should plant something rather than take yeah, the yeah, loss, yeah. collect the insurance. And, well, can we yeah. go back to what Scott was saying just a minute ago? Scott said that you know what we'd like to do is open it up to the voices um, who are being affected here. And, so, and you were about to answer that. What, what do you say to that? 
Well, you were talking about the big picture economic numbers. And I'm glad that you hit on that, Scott, because I think that something that a lot of people don't see and don't read tied to those headlines about, you know, the 3.6 percent unemployment rate, Mm -hmm. which is great. But what they're not seeing is that the farm economy does not resemble the national economic facts and figures. The farm economy is on its fifth year of downturn. I mean, we're talking about really low prices running for five years now. So a lot of these farmers are below the pr- the cost of production. They're not at break even. They're relying on a spouse or a family member's off-farm job for insurance to help pay for living expenses while they don't break even. And you know, farmers plan, they can do that for a year or two. But when you're on year five, and then you've got all this uncertainty in the marketplace, you're trying to figure out how to market your corn and try and make some money. And you can't because you don't know whether the markets are going to be up or down significantly overnight, right? I recall one of these downturns of the 1970s, where you had several straight years of declining prices. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the string, it really started affecting young farmers, who were much more reliant on loans, uh, had m- much less equity in their farms, and uh, drove a lot of people uh, off the farms into the cities. It's the young folks. It's you know the farmers that are renting and mm-hmm. don't have equity anymore at this point in time. Um, they don't have collateral to show their bankers, right? They don't. They don't have cash flow to show their bankers to get a line of credit for the next year of farming, and that's where you know we have been really focused on markets and we will continue to be focused on markets. That is like NCGA's priority. It's what we hear farmers want. You hear this from the president even said it last week. Farmers want trade, not aid, right? They want the markets to right. to dry things. Nobody but, wants a handout who no. works on a farm. But if you're in year five and you gotta go meet your banker and and you right. have no cash flow and, and your collaterals the, demand, the domestic market's not growing. We just can't eat all that much more stuff. You can say I'm going to get. You <laughs> can We're say I'm going to have. Okay, you got to find people outside of the country. Well, the other thing I was going to say too is is that with five years of downturn in the farm economy, that affects so many other industries around the farm economy and all the communities the farmers live in and all the businesses in those communities. So you're really talking about a lot of people in rural areas that are hugely affected by this. Who do those people, I don't know if blame is the right word, but who do those people point to when they see this five-year downturn? That's, I mean, that's been over two administrations. Um, who, are they, who are they looking at when it comes to uh, pointing fingers? I think it's a great question, and I really don't think that they're – knee-jerk reaction is to point fingers, right? I think they're trying to figure out a solution. I mean, we're always in Washington looking for, like, who's to blame and what politician is to blame. But I think it's a lot more complex than that. I mean, we could very easily sit here and ask you, you know, is what Trump's doing causing turbulence and uncertainty? But it's a, a lot more complex than that, I think. Well, most farmers I've talked to got into the business not because it was easy but because it's the business they wanted to be in. And there, there tends to be a, um, a good bit of stoicism about this my, in the community. My father-in-law was a farmer, a cattle, and he grew uh, corn uh, mostly to, to feed, the cattle, feed, sure. mostly yeah. to feed his cattle. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I think he, you know, he did it because he loved doing it. Uh, but there was always something wrong. Yeah. You know, the weather was wrong. The prices were wrong. Were wrong. The government was uh, – various levels of government were doing something wrong. I think farmers are sort of never really, really happy. Uh, I mean, they're other they, than doing they, what they love, the, which the, is yes, right. Kind of but they, they always have something. I mean, to, if you're they always have something to complain about. And you're listening to you know John Mellencamp and the sun shining and the wheat's growing and the corn's flowing. I mean, you're pretty happy. Well, let's go. I, you said something that was that I wanted to pursue for a minute. It was really That's a interesting. Pretty picture, isn't it? <laughs> 
Sure. Um, I've, I've joined them. It's, it's, it's a good experience, yeah. But it's nice to know where that corn's going to go when you're harvesting it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you talked about the, uh, particularly the young farmers, the people who can't get credit. Is, is the uncertainty and the five years really contributing to a, what would be the right word, sort of a further centralization of the industry? And you've got young people and marginal people getting out of business, which means that you've got a few that are getting bigger, presumably, and stronger, and then they hire people, but it's not quite the same thing. So some of the same things that people have talked about that are going on in our society generally uh, seem to be going on in this community as well. Is is that right? Yeah, you know, I think we're we're watching. um, We're kind of watching to see what happens there, but you hear a lot of folks talk about you know, farmers are used to, first they're used to cycles. So mm-hmm. just going back to like what we were talking about, there is that stoicism because they're used to the, these business cycles. That's the word I was looking for. Good word, stoicism. I think it was Scott's word, not mine. But <laughs> Scott has coined so many phrases on this show when I'll it comes to- it. Just saying. I mean, just like, like we you. could go through them here, but we don't have time for that. Scott is like the resident genius. He's the trade whisperer when it comes to, you know, concepts and work. But anyway, I digress. So go ahead. I do think that they're they're stoic and we're kind of keeping an eye out to see what happens in terms of consolidation. They're really looking for growth. And, and yeah. you talked about the opportunities that are there. So what's your priority list look like? U.S. Japan, uh, FTA, you mentioned that. Huge, right. That's huge for us. We So we've, we've got to get USMCA done first, right? right? Okay. We need that certainty. Um, I mean, we'll, we're going to walk and chew gum. USTR is certainly walking and chewing gum these what days. What do you think of its chances these days? Are you of optimistic? USMCA? Yeah. I, I see a path to yes. I am optimistic, and I think that, you know, there's a roller coaster ride that's being portrayed in the media, but um, as I'm up on the Hill talking to members, uh, House, Senate, both parties, you know, I think that there's a productive conversation actually taking place. It's a matter of, you know, are the bigger picture politics going to tank this thing? There seem to be fewer bombs being thrown than the typical trade agreements. I feel optimistic. My my column this week is that that I'm I'm still optimistic, too. This is something Scott and I have disagreed on, but I'm beginning to worry that some of the bombs are going to detonate. Uh, they're out there. But, the, you know, the president started talking about just sending the bill up again, yeah. which would be a huge mistake. Uh, or he's he's going to start talking again, I think, about, uh, about Withdraw. uh, withdrawing from NAFTA, which would be another huge mistake. Um, telling the Democrats he's not going to negotiate with them on anything as long as they're investigating him is, uh, is a ticket to accomplishing nothing. Uh, and I'm beginning to be a little more nervous about the Democrats restraining themselves. So we set out when we talked on the previous show, we talked about the landmines that are out there, and those are the landmines. Mm-hmm. And I think you're right that there's a path to avoid all of them. I'm getting a little more worried that uh, some of them are starting to tick, and uh, particularly the Trump ones. You know, I, I today's gossip was, you know, that there's, there there are these people, in, particularly in the White House, including the Vice President, who are saying, just send it up. Send it up, you know, push it to push the Congress, make them vote. I think uh, and, and Lighthizer's point out, you know, the last time that a president did that was in 2008 with Colombia and the same Speaker of the House. The vice president was in Congress then. He should remember. I think yeah. he, I'm pretty sure he was in Congress then. I mean, it was an it was an ugly scene. And it's like we've seen that movie. Thank you very much. One no, would think no interest in yeah. a rerun. But I'm glad to hear that you think there's a, a path here. That's good. I do. Yes. I, yes. I think folks understand that this is important and and that not having, you know, not having 
NAFTA as a possible outcome and not having an improved modernized agreement. I mean, if you think about this from from a Democrat's perspective, there are a lot of things that Democrats and some of their core constituencies have wanted to change in trade. And I think that this agreement really does set a precedent in some of those areas like labor and environmental standards to build on, to take as a template for trade agreements moving forward. And there's an opportunity there. And I think that um, there does seem to be a good relationship between the House Democrats in particular and Ambassador Lighthizer. I think both sides have uh, have worked on cultivating that. And if they can work through a few of the key issues, I actually think that the pharmaceutical one might be the biggest one from a policy standpoint. Couldn't agree, couldn't agree with you more. Right. I think you're exactly right about that. And if they can work through those things, and I really do think that there are a lot of members of Congress interested in working through those things because this is different than any previous agreement that they've had to consider and that they it's not abstract what this would deliver, right? We are right. it's already delivered. We know what it looks like. We know that there are a lot of jobs tied to this agreement. I think the chamber estimates like 14 million jobs tied to this agreement. And so we know that, you know, our value chains, our supply chains, our economies are linked, they're integrated, we're all connected, and unwinding this would be incredibly challenging. But there's also there are there's quite a bit to gain here that then we can look at um, building on in future agreements. Mm-hmm. So back to your initial question, Scott, Japan, we'd love to see more of a foothold generally in Asia. I mean, there's some really big markets, some really important growing markets. Vietnam would be a good one for us. Mm-hmm. You know, we have a sister organization that does the market development for the corn industry. They also do barley and sorghum, and they're called the U.S. Grains Council. Uh, so we work on that, you know, strategy and how that informs our policy very closely. They are really interested in um, in India as well. We have big challenges there, but it's such a compelling market. I think everyone's got their eye on it. And if we billion can, people and lots of problems, lot, that's, yeah, that's basically every industry's uh, experience. Yeah, they have energy demands. They have feed demands. I mean, they, you know, there's an opportunity there. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's a lot more opportunity for growth in Asia, in Latin America, in, in the Middle East, and Sub-Saharan Africa is going to be a big market. They're looking at all of it, short and long term. And you haven't mentioned Europe, where we're actually trying to have a negotiation. Yes. They're not trying to have They're us to in avoid. the negotiation, They're trying to avoid dealing with you in, you in any respect in the negotiation. Yes. That's true. Let me ask you this, Leslie. Your job is to represent the corn growers um, in front of the Congress and to the administration. What do they feel about the Congress and the administration right now? It seems like you know there is a lot of uncertainty and there is a lot of turbulence, and it's affecting their business. And like you said, five years of a downturn. This is not a pretty picture, although there's scenarios, as you just pointed out, that could be just around the corner that could be really great. So we might be on the cusp of turning things around, but here in Washington, we know things are not pretty. And they know things are not pretty. Mm -hmm. So what are you telling them? What are they telling you? They want people to get things done, and they're frustrated by this sense that things are not getting done when they see breakdowns in communication or mm-hmm. relations between um, Congress and and the White House, they're frustrated. You know, are they frustrated with Trump? I think they're frustrated with certain things that the president has done, but they're very nuanced in their views of the decisions that are being made and the way in which the decisions are being made. I think that what I hear, you know, they think the president is is decisive in his action. And that's something that, you know, farmers are executives. They're business people. They want to be decisive. They take action. They solve problems. So from a style standpoint, I think that they um, they like that and, and they like that he doesn't talk like a politician. 
We hear that quite a bit too. He has a different way of doing sure. things. Farmers like to be pretty unconventional in a lot of ways and, and are willing to innovate and think outside the box. But they don't like that a tweet can tank their markets for 24 hours unexpectedly. Sure. Um, even on something as big as China, right, which has been so disruptive for corn farmers and other farmers' markets, they still sympathize with the reasons for the dispute with China. Mm-hmm. I mean, f- corn farmers have experienced huge delays in biotechnology approvals. Why is that relevant? Because if they're looking at dealing with a pest or right. trying to you know, improve the way they're growing their corn, and they know a technology is out there, but it won't hit the marketplace for seven years because they're waiting for China to improve it, that bothers them. And it bothers them when you know, they hear that there's um, IP theft and and there was actual, there were was actual theft of seeds from fields in Iowa to take by Chinese nationals I to take back that. to yeah, Iowa. I read about that. Yes. Farmers, you know, that was reported yeah. big in the ag press. Farmers don't like that stuff, so they sympathize with the reasons, even though. You know, they hate being the collateral damage. Sure. Last time I was at a counter at a Bob Evans restaurant, the farmers were uniformly complaining about the price of seeds, mm-hmm. but they're paying for them. They're not stealing them. And that technology is vital to successful uh, operations, to high yields, to efficient farming. And so uh, my sense is that that most farmers just want people to get on with it. Stop fighting yep. about the, the little stuff. Focus on the big things. Get a program together. Help us Help us succeed. They're I not think looking a, for who to blame. Sorry, yeah, to no, they're, no, just, no, they're not it, as much as, I as think maybe that's interesting. we think that way. Well, I think it's important that what you said, that they, they, they don't like being collateral damage, but they also aren't trying to point fingers and they want solutions. And they've taken hits from the market in the past. You know, I, I think when I lost my train of thought earlier, what I was thinking about was the 80s because it was a mm-hmm. really disastrous time for the farm economy. A lot of farmers went out of business. You that's saw, when we started seeing farm aid concerts and things yes. like that consolidation, right? You saw the farmer footprint shrink. You saw farmers tell their kids, don't come back to the farm. There's, it's not profitable. There's nothing here for you. Go, you know, go to Wall Street, go be a lawyer or whatever. And so what you hear from farmers who have been doing this for a long time is this is starting to remind them of the 80s. The biggest difference I think is inflation. You know, we don't have inflation. You've got, you don't have maybe this, don't have the same debt to asset ratio to get technical. Some of the things are not the same, but the feeling, the uncertainty, that like what is coming, the anxiety, that it's because it's reminding a lot of these folks of the 80s. And I think some of the folks who have been in it for a longer time think we, we're used to weathering these storms, but it is the younger ones who haven't really lived through that, that, you know, they're just not as prepared. Are there a lot of young people that go, go into farming? These are mostly, I, I assume, kids that are taking over the family farm. The overhead is very expensive, so it's a lot of families trying to move the move the operation to the next generation, and they right. want to stay in it. Um, but you do have, I mean, you do have some young people that are really interested in farming and in sustainable food systems. They're interested in urban farming. Mm-hmm. There was a big effort from USDA, from a lot of you know different stakeholders in the ag community to create opportunities and pathways for new and young farmers returning military vets from rural areas, college grads, you know, you name it. Um, But I think that in this type of economy, you know, those challenges are really difficult to overcome. Um, When corn prices and when commodity prices were better a few years ago, it was a lot more of an attractive Uh, field to go into. I wonder, you know, there's a lot of colleges, particularly on the Midwest, Iowa, for example. I was, we did a conference out at Iowa State a few years ago that have agricultural departments, agricultural science departments, and Mm -hmm. they 
turn out every year people with bachelor's and master's degrees in various aspects of agronomy and agricultural science. Do you, is that declining? Is there, do we have any data on that? Are there fewer people going into it? Or are they just go, going into it, then they're ending up in, in labs or they're working, end up working for big cereal companies making better products and not, not doing farming? My reference point um, is a few years old at this point in terms of data. Purdue did a big study on this to look at where are the jobs in, in the food and agriculture industry because, you know, food and ag contributes to 12% of U.S. manufacturing. It's actually the largest segment of manufacturing, 9% of U.S. employment. So back to your point about huge ripple effect. This industry has major yeah. implications more yeah. broadly in our economy. And they need all kinds of disciplines to provide the the workers and the, the skilled it's workers. It's becoming much industry. more sophisticated work on almost all levels. Absolutely. I mean, compare a tractor today to one built 20 years yeah. ago, and look at the level of the of guidance control and and uh, the, the technological sophistication is amazing. And the services that are embedded in that machine are remarkable. So there's a whole the the, the farming community doesn't is doesn't stand still. It continues to evolve. It continues to apply technology. Uh, we're feeding an amazing number of people in the world uh, with amazing efficiency, uh, th- something that people have been saying can't be done since Malthus. So, Absolutely. And when you look at the, the longer-term projections, I mean, we could see enough demand to really get ourselves out of this economic spot that we're in, but we just have to need enough farmers to stay in business to get through it. Global demand, Global not demand. U.S. demand. So, Correct. Last question. What do you do over the next year and a half, two years to educate the candidates and the rest of the Congress and the president for issues that are going to be debated um, over the next two years in this uh, presidential cycle? I think it's a great question. And it's a really challenging one, you know, that we're we're trying to figure out. I think the fact that Iowa is such an important early state um, mm-hmm. is a really great way to help the candidates get acquainted. That just happens to be, you know, Happy to grow a lot of corn corn there. Yeah, Yeah, and it's a great way to – so it's a great way for the candidates to get to know farmers and get to hopefully listen and hear what's on the minds of farmers. And then trying to work to elevate these issues so that they they get on the radar. And, you know, I think that agriculture – more broadly, you know, the big the big pieces are going to be how to how do does the farm economy get on the radar, and that's probably going to be a little bit more obvious during these these campaign stops, mm-hmm. particularly in Iowa. But trade specifically is a much more challenging issue on the campaign trail. I mean, we saw it. You know, TPP was was not popular for either of the major candidates last go around. How TPP all of a sudden. Rarely do you see trade issues, especially trade issues that most people don't know anything about other than those three letters become a wedge issue during a presidential campaign. Yeah. But both candidates were, you know, Clinton and Trump were both negative on it. So, um, you know, I think that um, we're still trying to think about what is what does the USMCA conversation even look like? I mean, fingers crossed it'll be done. But, you know, China tariffs. Where is everything going to stand, and and is it mm-hmm. going to be so politicized that we can't have a constructive conversation? Um, I think what we're we're working to do is to make sure that farmers' voices are heard, that they're part of the conversation, that candidates are listening to them and understanding how things impact them and their communities. Sure. And I think that's the best that you know we can do. I think what you've got going for you on. USMCA is exactly what you said at the beginning of this conversation, which is that what NAFTA really has done is integrated the market. 
That was the point. And over 25 years, it really did that. And I think there were people that opposed NAFTA in the beginning. As you know, there was Ross Perot and the great sucking sound of jobs and investment leaving the country. I think 25 years later, a lot of uh, politicians have come to terms with it and realized that, uh, you know, maybe they weren't for it then. Uh, maybe they're skeptical about it. Maybe it has deficiencies. But it's created a, an integrated market that, uh, the, and the consequences of interrupting that, which you spelled out very clearly, uh, are enormous. So I don't, I think in contrast with TPP, what you don't have, USMCA, is a you know, a really active, committed group of people saying we have to torpedo this thing. And I think most of them understand that, you know, we want to make it better, we want to fix it, or, you know, I can't vote for it because the president's for it. But you don't have a lot of people out there saying it, it's just a disaster. I was struck when we, we did a, a closed-door meeting here a couple months ago. We had a someone from the Hill come up and talk and said, if you want to see how it's going, contrast where the thing, where the debate was three years ago on TPP, when it looked like we were going to have a vote, and where it is now, then you had everybody lined up. You had all the unions lined up. You had Democrats lined up against it. Everybody was marshalling their forces, preparing for war. And here you don't have that. You hear, have bunches of people trying to get to yes. And you're exactly right. They may fail. I mean, they, we don't. We I, I at least hope not. I think as do you, but there are you know landmines that can detonate. But the mood is different, and I think uh, it's different partly because people understand the market integration that's already hurt, that's already existed, and they don't want to interrupt that. TPP was was new, and it was easier to oppose something that was new. Sorry for the rant. It's a good rant. Good to have you, Bill. Leslie, great to have you. Thanks Scott, for me. great as always to have you. Great discussion. Wait a minute, wait, wait, wait a minute. It was just good to have me, and it was great to have them. Well, you had a rant. That's why, you know, <laughs> oh, we, had, we, had, okay. we had to give you a little, you know. All right. And so also, you know. You're I mean, just even with me because it's, it's a plus performance. Yeah, exactly, okay. exactly, right. exactly, <laughs> exactly. I'm glad you noticed the little distinctions there. Um, Leslie, fantastic to have you. Thanks. Thanks um, for having me. It was a really wonderful discussion about farms and corn and uh, future policies that our country is going to have to deal with. So we'd love to have you back. Thanks a lot for coming. Thank you. It was fun. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. We're also now on Spotify, so you can find us there when you're listening to the Rolling Stones or you're listening to Tom Petty or whatever you're listening to. Thank you, Trade Guys. Thanks, Thank you. Andrew. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.